This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 367. Spitzer does exoplanets. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. With me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. I want to shamelessly self-promote something this week. This is unusual in what way? <laughs> what are you kidding me? No. <laughs> I never no, self promote. I, I, I just remember when your Phases of the Moon app came out, which yeah, yeah. is an awesome app, but you use that sentence a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I am now going to shamelessly self promote my Patreon campaign. So you can go to Patreon.com/slash/universe today, and uh, you can kick us a couple of bucks every month, and that makes that goes for making Universe Today. We, we remove all the ads from Universe Today from you. You get advanced access to all the cool videos that we're doing. Uh, I'll follow you on Twitter. <laughs> I will, we shout out in the videos that we record your name and seriously, it makes a huge, huge difference. The, you know, ads suck and, and being a way that we can actually just work directly for the fans who love the stuff that we do. That's, that means the world to us. And, uh, you know, so this, this is the future. I, I think it's just fantastic for all the people. I really want to thank all the people that have already supported me. And and I would love it if you can kick a couple of bucks our, our way, and and after you kick a couple of bucks to him, you need to also go sponsor the Patreon campaign for Learning Space, um, because we use Patreon to fund all of our teacher professional development. So you can help pay the salaries of Nicole Bracy and uh, Nicole Gallucci, whose name I finally know how to pronounce, nice. and uh, they will turn your money into helping teachers get science into the classroom. We will not follow you on Twitter. Uh, we will instead educate the world. It's it's a different priority, yeah. but uh, we can keep up better with teachers than with Twitter. And we are going to be doing a Patreon campaign for Astronomy Cast shortly. So so stay tuned for that. And all hail Patreon. <laughs> yes. If, yes. You're, if you're a creator, I highly recommend. Cole Palmer, if you're listening, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get rolling with the show today. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So we spent the last few weeks talking about different ways that astronomers are searching for exoplanets. But now we reach the most exciting part of the story, actually imaging these planets directly. And today, we're going to talk about the work that NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope has done viewing the atmospheres of distant planets. All right, Pamela, so we've talked about Spitzer a bunch of times. We've talked about Spitzer in terms of uh, just infrared astronomy. We talked about the actual, just the telescope and, and what 
you know, what happened with the telescope. But let's really focus in on Spitzer's work for observing extrasolar planets and then maybe what the future holds for this method of looking at uh, the atmospheres of planets. So so I'd like to start by clarifying that when we say directly imaging exoplanets, what we mean is uh, getting spectrum of their atmospheres. Um, So Spitzer is allowing us to directly detect the characteristics of of exoplanets from wind speeds to what their atmospheres are composed of. But we can't look at a planet and say it's blue or it's green. No, that's what I said. That's that's exactly what I said. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, um, the Spitzer Space Telescope launched back in 2003. We did an entire episode on the dude it's named after. We did an entire episode on it. And it, it was originally designed to uh, see very uh, red waves of light the far infrared and to do that it needed liquid helium on board and as it was designed to do um over time it used up all of that liquid helium and in may 2009 uh this glorious space telescope warmed up but it only warmed up so far as it can still see into the infrared just not as far into the infrared and because they were planning for this to happen they designed a spacecraft with instruments that can still work now that it's a little bit warmer And some of those detectors include spectrographs that are capable of detecting atomic and molecular lines from other stars and apparently other planets. And And last episode, we talked about all about, you know, spectroscopic lines and how a spectrograph is laid out and, you know, how you build a room that you display the rainbow of the light from a star. Spitzer doesn't have a room to do this. So so what is the instrument like on Spitzer? Well, so different types of spectrographs have different purposes. The ones that we were talking about last week are extraordinarily high resolution in order to determine uh, exactly how fast a star is or is not moving. This, this means that when we look at its lines, we can, using spectrographs like that, if there's two different versions of the same atom side by side, for instance, if, for instance, different versions of lithium, we can see those differences. If there are two different versions of a molecule, like different versions of magnesium hydride, which I've studied in the past with a CUDE spectrograph, we can see those different versions. That high, high resolution is what allows us to see a little lure, not little, but little lure planets yanking around on little stars and big planets yanking around on big stars and everything in between. But once we know there's a planet there, we can do something else. We can also start trying to separate out the light from the star and the light from the planet. And Telescopes like uh, the one that is used at Lasil for HARPS, they don't really do that so much because the light from the star as seen in optical just totally drowns out the light from the planet. But with Spitzer looking in the infrared, planets, they're really good at absorbing heat and re-radiating it in a variety of different ways. And stars aren't usually quite as bright out in the infrared as they are in the, well, 
bluer wavelengths of light. So with Spitzer, we have this fabulous combination of we're looking in the colors that planets are brightest and stars are fainter. And this allows us to start to make out the light of the planet entwined with the light of the star. It's weird to think about that that idea that the that the star is less bright. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Like, because you just imagine if it's like a bright star, it's just going to overpower everything that we see because of its sunlight and because of its visible light. But I mean, obviously, stars do radiate in the infrared as well, but they're pushing a lot of that into the visible light, into the X-rays, and and so on. And so it's actually quite funny that you can sort of split the difference between the, the brightness of the planet and the brightness of the star when you push into that infrared spectrum. And and this all goes back to, again, we did an entire episode on this, it goes into black body radiation. The color of light where an object gives off the most light is directly related to the temperature of that object. So this is partially why really hot stars are bluer and really cold stars are redder. Those wavelengths are where the peak intensity from the stars are. Now with the black body intensity, it's kind of like you taper off towards zero, going towards longer and shorter wavelengths, um, and you have this beautiful asymmetric curve. Um, We take advantage of that curve when we use the Spitzer Space Telescope. And we also take advantage of transiting planets. So you do have to have not necessarily a planet that passes directly in front of the star, but you need a planet that passes directly behind the star. Whoa. (laughs) It's like the opposite of a transit. It's an opposite. What do they, you know, what do they call it when the star eclipsing? What do they call when the star is going in front of the planet has been eclipsed by the star has been or an occultation. Sort of, kind of. Yeah. Like when, no, I guess not. When, when, when a moon, passes in front of the star that's an occultation anyway um so so can you explain (laughs) that then so let's explain that why why when the planet passes behind the star can we tell what the planet's atmosphere is well it's it's because we have to do subtraction and what we really need is that clean spectra of the star Uh, We can observe the combined light of the planet and the star, even if the planet isn't directly in front of the star. So if they're side by side, as long as that planet is radiating uh, both heat emission from, well, it absorbs it, it's now giving it off like Jupiter does. Jupiter gives off more energy than Uh, it receives from the sun. Uh, So you have a nice hot Jupiter. It's giving off more light than it's receiving and it's heated up anyways. So we have a nice, really warm object. Um, Stick that right next to the star or in front of the star and you now have the combined spectra of planet plus star. Now, we unfortunately aren't in the situation where we can readily just go, let's erase the star by looking strictly at the planet. Um, that requires a chronograph. As we've discussed, we don't really have super awesome chronographs yet. We're getting there. There's a few good ones. Um, we have some direct images of planets, but not good ones. So Spitzer doesn't have a chronograph. And so the best we can do is wait for that planet to duck behind the star. And when the planet is behind the star, we're not seeing any of its light. We get a clean specter of just the star. We now take the specter of star plus planet subtract spectra of star we are left with spectra of planet so what's the process then how do the astronomers choose which 
objects to point at? How do they know there's going to be a planet there to observe? Well, they're they're either looking at something where we already know there's a planet via the transit method, or it's a survey object. A large number of scientists have said, I'm going to search, and this is why we originally started getting into this game with objects like 51PEG and the Cygnus binary system. Um, I'm going to look at sun-like stars, or at least stars that are very high in metals. Metals make planets. And I'm just going to look at them with the Doppler method to look for the wiggles that are related to a planet being there. Uh, Add in transit surveys. We have Crow. We have uh, Kepler. Throw those in. Throw in the random person in their driveway with their four-inch reflector or refractor getting lucky with awesome photometry. And we've started to find planet after planet after planet. Now, we're not in general going to do that sort of survey work using a space telescope, but once planets have been identified via some other means, we can start doing follow-up observations with Spitzer. Now, there's also scientifically interesting objects that they're going to be doing high-resolution spectrograph spectroscopy of, and occasionally we get into really lucky situations where we knew there was one planet that we'd found via some method, Um, And then once we start subtracting that star off, we realize, wait, there's other things there as well. Right. So, I mean, so they they typically identify the targets using some other method, be it, um, you know, they use uh, the transit method, the radio velocity method. People find them from the ground. They find this candidate. And then I guess if it meets a certain kind of criteria, they think, okay, this is the kind of thing that we can observe with with Spitzer. So so ideally what they're going to start by chasing is the hot Jupiters. These are the objects that are, well, like their name says, gas giants similar to Jupiter. Uh, but the hot part means that quite often they're on orbits that are far smaller than the orbit of even Mercury. So you're looking at a Jupiter-like object snuggled up so closely to its sun that in some cases it actually raises uh, tidal forces, waves on the surface of both the star and the planet. Got it. Uh, And so what kinds of planets then has Spitzer taken a look at? I mean, there are well, some pretty crazy planets. There, there's some pretty crazy planets. You you have, well, like I hinted to, you have these hot Jupiters that are so close to the planet that they're orbiting that they actually essentially pull up a plasma wave from the surface of the star that as the planet orbits, this wave follows around on the surface of the star. Um, you end up with planets that are essentially leaving behind tails of material as the radiation of the star they're orbiting uh, pushes off the planet's atmosphere. Then you also start finding things that that we should have thought about as existing ahead of time, but at least I know I never read about them in, in journal articles prior to reading about Spitzer observing them, you end up with what we look at as small rocky worlds, but are probably nothing more than the left behind remnants of, well, a gas giant that is a gas giant no more. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. I mean, the most recent, some of the most recent observations, right? I was mentioning that, right? That they've turned or they, they found objects, which are like mini, mini Neptunes that have had that, the outer, uh, layers blasted away and turned into a super earth potentially 
Um, exactly. So that's just that's just kind of mayhem. So I mean, how do you get a planet that's in that kind of an extreme environment? How do you get a planet that's so close? I mean, I'm envisioning. I don't know if you've seen these pictures of of pictures of the rings from Cassini, where yeah. you see these little shepherding moons that are moving within the rings, and they're pulling this tidal, almost like, you know, a gravity wave. They're pulling uh, ice particles towards the the moon as it moves around, and then I guess as the moon moves away, then the particles fall back into their into their place. And I guess that's the same thing, right? That, that as this planet is going around the the star, there is like this super tide that's that's getting pulled up towards I, how do you get this <laughs> um i love it when you ask me questions that if i had a complete answer for i could say hand me my nobel prize please um we <laughs> we don't fully know is the answer and and when when we first started finding hot jupiters I, I remember listening. I unfortunately can't remember his name. It was an Israeli planetary uh, theoretical planet modeler, awesome dude who was just like, we we didn't calculate this to begin with. This was not, I, to paraphrase horribly, a conversation that occurred in the early 2000s. No one ordered this up. We we had kind of assumed the planets mostly form where they are or they migrate a little bit due to gravitational interactions. But this migrating all the way in toward the sun and stopping, it's the stopping that's the mystification part. Um, so there, there's various ideas. Uh, one of the ones that I like the most, this doesn't mean it's the most likely, it's just the one that there's a whole lot of them out there. We don't know which is right. Um, the one I like the most is you have the sun. Uh, it's when it's very young, it's it's a blasting evil little star screaming in x-rays and other shades of light. And it blasts out the solar nebula around it as part of ending the, the star formation. Um, so basically you have stuff collapsing, stuff collapsing, star ignites, star star starts giving off light the light pressure then starts pushing stuff away so the infall stops you then have cleared out at least some of the region around the star around that you have the solar nebula stellar nebula uh if it whatever you want to call it we always call it a solar solar nebula um and and planets are forming in that and for reasons we can't fully articulate some of these planets are not pleased to stay where they are and they start migrating towards that star and either they stop because they stop absorbing matter and stop having frictional interactions when they hit the inner rim of that planetary disk and we have no real observational evidence of things clearing a spiral instead of clearing a ring they stop for some reason. So for some reason, it probably has to do with frictional dynamics. They get dragged in and then they stop and don't fall in for reasons we don't fully articulate. One of the theories put forward is the sun cleared out that inner region. Or magic. Yeah. Something devised in a computer. If you've read Cybermage, magic yeah. is mediated by servers. I'm good with that. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of these planets are also tidally locked to their stars, right? And so they get these ferocious winds that, that blast across the planet, too. And, and what's awesome is with Spitzer, they're actually able to get a sense of how wide the atmospheric lines are. And the cool thing with rotating worlds, rotating stars, things that rotate is as that rotating object 
uh, one side of it's going to be coming towards you and being blue shifted. The other side's going to be moving away from you and being red shifted. And of course, the middle is moving perpendicular to you. So there's no shift uh, perceived. And this whole rotating body ends up creating a thickening, a broadening of that spectral line. And it gets broader the faster that sucker is spinning or the faster the winds are blowing, the fat faster the convective cells in the atmosphere. And we can see that and we can see, That's oh, dear amazing. God, I don't want to be on that world. That's crazy that you can it's detect. Awesome. I know it's awesome, right? That you can detect the, the, the speed that it's rotating, the speed of its winds, how long it takes to go around. Uh, the composition of its atmosphere, what it's probably made out of based on the atmosphere, and all this kind of stuff without really, as we said, we're not, you're not looking at it. You're just having all of these indirect observations based on its spectra. And this is like spectroscopic analysis has got to be just like the one of the greatest tools that astronomers have at their disposal. It's also the most boring set of images you can possibly yeah, you're just look looking at. at these lines. <laughs> Yeah. I studied magnesium, as I said, I studied magnesium hydride stars and you can go read the paper. It's 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 in ADS. And that was by far the most boring thing I've done in my entire life. And I study variable stars. Right. That uh, sounds a little brighter. Now it's a little dimmer. <laughs> now it's a little brighter. Right. Now it's a little dimmer. Yeah. So so what's what's awesome about this is beyond just being able to say, wow, that world has really fast uh convective cells in its atmosphere uh we can also say wow that planet we can start to see water we can start to see we haven't yet found free oxygen in an atmosphere but this has actually led to a whole body of research on what chemical composition what chemical fingerprint in an atmosphere means there's life yeah. and i actually have a bet with seth shostak who periodically forgets we had this bet because it was over dinner and and there may not have only been food consumed but seth shostak from the study institute and i have a bet on i say we're going to find life on other worlds first by detecting the chemical comp composition in a world's atmosphere yeah. rather than by detecting radio waves uh Love the Allen telescope. It does more science than just listening for little green dudes. Uh, but I really believe it's yeah. it's in telescopes like Spitzer that we're going to find life on other planets. And you and I, you know, we're in complete agreement. And this is why yeah. we have advocated for literally the entire time that we have been doing astronomy cast together uh, that there should be some kind of super powerful telescope designed to observe the atmospheres of distant worlds yeah build this telescope answer the question don't you want to know the answer to this question just build us a telescope please and and james webb space telescope will have the capacity to go beyond what spitzer's doing and uh yeah do the so job was, yeah better so talk about next, bigger right? mirror yeah so let's yeah. talk about james webb that's the next you know it's gonna i mean with spitzer it's been there haven't been a lot of observations, right? There haven't been a lot of planets they've really been able to observe with Spitzer. James it's, Webb it's, is going to take us to the next. It's not like Kepler delivering thousands and thousands of planets, well, right? Well, Kepler's a discovery, discover the planets mission. Spitzer is a follow-up on just the right ones and get extraordinary amounts of data. So, so the way to think of it is 
uh, going along and identifying a me- with a metal detector where all of the bits of metal on the beach are and dropping a little piece of plastic saying, hey, there's a piece of metal here. And then where the biggest pieces of metal are, someone else comes along and digs up, well, Blackbeard's treasure. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about let's talk about James Webb and maybe some other methodologies that can use this technique to to find the same thing. So with with Spitzer Space Telescope, it's a 0.85 meter, a two foot nine inch mirror. So that's a fairly small. Eh, yeah, two foot nine inches. Yeah, yeah. it's it's like yeah. this two and a half ish. Feet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not big. I I my hair is probably about that length. Um. So with the James Webb Space Telescope, you're looking at a multi-meter mirror uh, that you and I could probably, the two of us, manage to span across. Um, that's that's a bit bigger. Yeah, and it's gi- yeah, it's a gigantic. Uh, there's great. Have you ever seen the model? Yes, you I did? saw it with you. We were oh, both right. there together. Right, right. <laughs> I always forget. Uh, that's right. We were there together at the model, and it was gigantic. Yeah. So when, when we were at South by Southwest a couple of years ago and we posted a bunch of photos of it. That's right. I remember. Sorry, I had to make fun of you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you go see as Fraser and I have done together together as a team, (laughs) (laughs) the, uh, the James Webb space telescope is big. Yeah. It's, it's slated to be, I'm, looking up the number it changed size at one point and i want to not lie about how big it currently slated to be and i was going to so i'm glad i looked up the number it's currently slated to be 6.5 meters across and i believe that that number will actually stick um so that's i mean hubble is three meters no no 1.6 meters two meters it's around that area right so this is substantial substantially bigger. bigger yeah and bigger means better yeah right? bigger something like that <laughs> so that, that math sort of holds <laughs> yeah so so in this case the bigger means better actually does apply it doesn't always apply harps is on a small telescope it does awesome work uh but with james webb it takes what spitzer is able to do with a small mirror and goes hey we can see fainter stuff with which means that they can look at the same stars but at a greater distance and increase the number of stars that we're going to be able to see and detect the planets on. Um, So you still have the problem of the planet needs to be transiting. You still have the problem of the planet needs to be hot enough and you don't have a coronagraph. But the number of things that you're able to now look at because you can see fainter objects, which means you can see things that are further away, uh, it's going to increase our sample size. It's going to increase the number of things we're able to look at. It has that spectrograph on board. I believe it's of a higher resolution. Um, truth will be in the pudding once the sector's launched and hopefully deploys correctly. It better deploy correctly. Um, but this is, both Spitzer and James Webb Space Telescope are telescopes that in in the long history of instruments like Hubble and ground-based instruments like Palomar even, um, 
these are systems that are designed to answer a myriad of fundamental questions. Hubble was put up to help figure out the expansion rate of the universe and what the heck planetary nebula are, uh, as well as many other things. But planetary nebula was a real problem when Hubble launched. We just couldn't understand them. Still don't have that fully figured out either, but, you know. But we're a lot closer. Yeah. Uh, James Webb Space Telescope is going to help us get back to the beginning of the universe when it comes to looking at galaxies forming. But it's also going to help us with the nearby universe, helping us understand the formation of planets, the atmospheres of planets. And when I say planets, I finally get to mean things uh, more than a few light years away. Yeah, yeah. Are there any potential ground-based observatories that are going to do this work as well? Well, what you start to run into with ground-based is uh, as you look further and further into the infrared, our atmosphere becomes a insert all the expletives. Right. Um, becomes an we have, opaque wall. Yeah. We have these evil things known as water molecules in our atmosphere. And it gets a little bit easier when you get into the high altitude deserts where most of the moisture in the atmosphere is below you and not actually there because you're in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um even in Hawaii, though, at high altitude where you're looking down at oceans and clouds, even there it's substantially better, but it's still there. So um, you really have to be up in space, just like Spitzer. problem with space is you eventually run out of helium, and you do require helium cooling on these systems. Um, but uh, there are long-term missions you can do just by blocking the light, and James Webb has that amazing and weird uh solar shield and uh when it deploys it will keep everything in shadow and hopefully keep everything cool but they're going to be busy with james webb's going to be busy so don't don't count on it being able to spend a lot of time looking at planets it's you know it's got that whole look back to the very edge of the observable universe job as well so dark energy dark 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 matter matter, dark uh, planets protoplanets Peering yeah. through gas and dust to see the center of the galaxy, yeah, it's it's got it's got some jobs to do. So looking but for asteroids, we'll... cold Kuiper Belt objects, <laughs> finding more planets in the solar. System. Anyway, it, James Webb's gonna be busy. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, but hopefully, like Hubble, it will live long enough that uh, eventually we'll start be start being able to do the meh science mm-hmm. because there's something bigger and better on the horizon. Um, right. And so really uh, what we're saying is someone should build a coronagraph equipped infrared telescope capable we'll of take analyzing, a three meter. Ca- capable of analyzing the atmospheres of distant worlds. Put that in the hands of Pamela and <laughs> we will find your aliens. Okay. And I will find an actual infrared t- observer to do all yeah, of yeah, the work. Yeah, no, that person will find all the I'll just fill out the paperwork. We will deliver I'm, you I'm aliens, okay? We will deliver you aliens. Do you not want to know if there are aliens? Get us our telescope. Or at least trees. Or, or at least trees. I, I, trees. We can find sure. the ants out there. Yeah, perfect. If there's an ant, we can see it. Awesome. Or at least we can see the oxygen. All right. Well, then, um, even if we don't get our telescope, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Sounds good, Chris. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at infoastronomycast.com. 
tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you miss the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.